Welcome back to Core Anesthesia. Whether you are a student prepping for tests and boards or a CRNA here to earn CEUs, we are glad you've joined us. For more about us, make sure to check us out on Instagram at Core Anesthesia and online at coreanesthesia.com. Welcome back to Core Anesthesia. I'm here with Tanner and we're going to be talking about laparoscopic surgeries today, specifically a pneumoperitoneum and what effects that's going to have on hemodynamics, pulmonary complications, uh, different complications that you can have, such as a gas emboli or sub-emphysema. And we're just going to go through how that's going to affect our anesthesia care of the patient. So Tanner, do you want to start us off here? Yeah, so the first thing that we'll want to talk about is basically just the idea of, of what this procedure looks like. So there's two main ways that they'll insufflate the abdomen um, to give you this pneumoperitoneum. And the idea here is that they, they want to be able to inflate the abdomen so that they'll have a clear view of uh, whatever surgery they're doing. And so a normal abdominal pressure is usually around 5 to 10 and um, what they'll do is there's two ways they can do this normally. Uh, the first way is the Hassan procedure. So this would be where they make a small incision um, and then they can place the trocar actually into that an incision they make. And then through that, they can insufflate the abdomen. The other way you can do this is with the varus needle. And this is a blind technique and they can uh, basically by feel um, get into the uh, proper abdominal cavity and um, then they can insufflate through that needle. Um, when they insufflate, like I said, normal pressure is about five to 10. They'll usually go 15 to 25. I read that 25 uh, is the best view for uh, when they're trying to separate the abdominal wall from um, its contents to be able to look around, but they should still be able to do their surgery at um, a pressure of 12 millimeters of mercury. So that is, if you have, we'll get into some complications later, but um, you can decrease the pressure if it's causing too much um, hemodynamic complications. So Cole, you want to talk a little bit about the positioning that these uh, procedures are usually done in? Yeah. So laparoscopic surgeries, Nowadays, we're getting into more and more extreme positioning. And so what I mean by that is for other surgeries in the past, you would just have the patient in Trendelenburg with their feet elevated and their head down. But now we're getting even more extreme where we're really tilting these patients. And so we're starting to see a lot more complications from these extreme positionings. And so we go into it more on our positioning lecture. But basically what we want to talk about here is that depending on if you're in Trendelenburg or reverse Trendelenburg position for these laparoscopic surgeries, it's either going to enhance the complications from our pneumoperitoneum or it's going to combat them. And so the only way to really explain it is to kind of go through each complication. And so we'll talk about it as we go through different pulmonary and cardiovascular changes. So in cardiovascular, if we have a pneumoperitoneum, so that carbon dioxide is going to be filled up in the belly, and what's going to happen is, uh, originally when they're first putting in the gas, you can have a vagal response. And so this is usually occurring during the insertion of the needle um, or when we're, when we're extending or stretching that belly with the gas. And so you're going to have the patient um, have a bradycardic episode. And so when this occurs, uh, you want to make sure you have drugs 
uh, appropriate on hand if this sort of happens, such as uh, atropine would be a good example of something you would want. Um, so just be aware that you can have a vagal response right away when you're first inserting this. And usually, usually with these patients, it, it depends on the type of patient too, right? So if they've had, uh, if you have a woman in there that's had several kids in the past, she's going to have a pretty good compliance with her abdominal region. If you have somebody there who, um, think of like a, a middle-aged gentleman who has kind of a round belly or uh, maybe some ascites, things like that, that's really tense, that's where they're going to have an exaggerated vagal um, reflex. So keep in mind too, just kind of what the patient looks like. Um, you can kind of judge a little bit if you're, they're going to run into this vagal response or not. Yeah, perfect. And so after it's been initiated and we, we, we filled up to the pressure that we want, the body is going to start having a catecholamine release and we're going to activate our um, renin system. So what we're going to see is basically increased hormones such as um, aldosterone, uh, vasopressin, um, all the different catecholamines. And so you're going to have an elevated SVR and you're also going to have a decrease in blood flow to your kidneys. And again, this is one just because of the, the release of all those hormones due to the, the elevated pressures from our gas that we're filling up in the belly. And so we'll go through each body system here. But so starting with cardiovascular, like I said, those, those catecholamines are going to cause your SVR to increase. So your systemic vascular resistance um, is going to slightly go up. And that's one, due to those catecholamines, but also two, we're going to have mechanical compression of the abdominal vessels. So the biggest one would be your aorta. So all that pressure is going to be compressing the aorta and cause an increase in afterload that your heart has to push against to, to pump that blood through. Next, let's talk about uh, cardiac filling pressures. So you talked about how you have an increased SVR. Well, your filling pressures will stay increased because of the insufflation of the abdomen. Your filling volumes will be uh, quickly increased, and then that will only be short-lived because um, basically there's compression. There's not allowing uh, venous blood to return to the heart. So you can fix that a couple of ways. You can... Um, give them more fluids, which is going to increase their preload. You can also give, uh, give them compression stockings or things like that. That's going to keep uh, blood moving back to the heart. And so the biggest thing here is when we're talking about positioning, it's either going to enhance these effects or it's going to combat them. And so what I mean by that is if we put the patient in reverse Trendelenburg for the procedure, then it's going to enhance the complication of not getting blood back to the heart. So it's going to be even harder to get that venous return back. Whereas if you put the patient in Trendelenburg position, it's going to assist, gravity is going to assist bringing that blood back to the heart. And so you're not going to see as much of a decrease in venous return from having the pneumoperitoneum. And that's simply because of the position that you're in. Awesome. So when you look at the cardiac index, cardiac output, this will usually be decreased. Cole, like you just mentioned, you're going to have increased afterload. Your SVR is going to be increased combined with decreased uh, venous return. We already talked about some strategies that you can try to use to uh, combat that. And like you said, depending on their positioning, you this may be <laughs> self-limiting. Um, so the you talked about a little bit earlier the cardiac rhythm. You're not going to see a whole lot of change. 
The one to keep in mind though, is your vagal reflex. So you might have some bradycardia. Again, that's when you uh, insert the needle or when the procedure starts or uh, when you are just insufflating the abdomen and you get that uh, peritoneal stretch. Right. And the other thing I kind of want to mention with, with the CO2 is that CO2 is not going to stay in the, in that cavity to cause that increased pressure. It's going to diffuse into the blood. And when it does, there, there's going to be some cardiovascular changes from that as well. So we know that CO2 is a vasodilator. So like we said earlier, how you're going to have those catecholamine releases that are going to cause vasoconstriction and increased uh, SVR and your MAP. Um, the more CO2 that diffuses in will actually kind of combat this a little bit because of that, that vasodilation that's going to occur from the CO2. But theoretically, we're going to have a slightly increased SVR map um, just from the, the things we've already talked about. But, but you may not see extreme changes simply because if the CO2 is diffusing through, that's also going to combat it a little bit. Yeah, awesome point. So to recap, basically, you are going to, um, when you insulate the abdomen, look out for bradycardia. When you insulate the abdomen, you might initially get some higher uh, filling volumes, but that will quickly go down uh, as your body no longer can compensate. Your stroke volume is probably going to decrease because of the decreased venous return. Again, you can combat this with fluids, positioning, um, and then also, like you mentioned, your um, CO2 that's going to diffuse into the blood is going to have some vasodilating effects, even though overall we're going to see an increased SVR. Anything else you want to add on cardiac stuff? Uh, one last thing in terms of just getting blood flow to places. Uh, your, there's two other organs that I kind of want to branch off into while we're on this topic. So either your kidneys or your liver and spleen. So your kidneys are going to get uh, a reduction in blood flow to it. Again, from what we talked about, your uh, catecholamine release and then um, also your compression of the abdominal um, aorta. And so what's that, what that's going to cause is a decrease in blood flow to the kidney. It's not going to be able to filter as much into urine, and so you're going to have a decreased urine output. So a lot of the patients that we have in these laparoscopic procedures are not going to have high amounts of, of urine. Additionally, if we place these patients in Trendelenburg position, then gravity is just going to keep whatever urine we're making into the, the wrong side of a bladder, and we're not going to be able to drain it through our Foley anyway. And so you're really not going to see a lot of, of urine output in these patients. And so and having that decrease in blood pressure or blood volume going to the kidneys is also going to further activate that, that renin system to try to get more, uh, more flow. And so it's just going to kind of cycle itself down. In terms of the spleen and the liver, uh, you, you might have a little bit of a decrease uh, in blood pressure, sorry, an increase in blood pressure from what we've talked about before, uh, but it's not really as much as the kidneys. And so we're, we're not really going to see too many changes in terms of liver or spleen function. You might have a slightly elevated liver panel after the procedure, but it's really n nothing that we're con too concerned about for a shorter procedure. Perfect. So next let's talk about some pulmonary changes that you're going to see. And uh, again, this makes sense, but as you insulate the abdomen, it's going to push the diaphragm cephalad. And so what that basically does 
is decreases your functional reserve capacity. So these patients are not going to have quite as much reserve. When you talk about their compliance, they're going to have decreased compliance. This makes sense because the basically the compliance is the ability to expand. And if you have a bunch of air in your abdomen, um, there's not as much place for uh, your lungs to expand. So with this, something to keep in mind is that you can get some increased atelectasis just from the dependent parts of your lungs that are not able to oxygenate. And so then blood is going to be shunt- shunting away from that um, to other parts of your lungs. So something to keep in mind with these patients after surgery, they may have a higher degree of atelectasis. This isn't usually clinically significant, but something to definitely keep in mind. Yeah, and if you suspect that there's going to be a significant amount of atelectasis, you can do uh, recruitment maneuvers um, at the end of the procedure to try to just recruit more of those alveolar sacs to uh, regain their function prior to the end of the surgery. But like like Tanner said, though, this happens in pretty much every surgery we're going to have. It's just a matter of if it's significant or not. Uh, and that's another thing to bring up is what kind of FiO2 we're going to use with these patients because th- there are some studies I've read that that show if you're using 100% FiO2, you're at increased risk of having atelectasis just because of all that oxygen being absorbed from the lung into the bloodstream. And then you're not getting as much coming back out in terms of CO2. And so you basically can have those sacs close. So that's another thing to keep in mind. If you're suspecting these people are going to already be at risk for elevated atelectasis, uh, if you can get by with not using as much FiO2, by all means do that. In terms of CO2 getting into the bloodstream, you're going to have at least a decent amount diffusing into the bloodstream from that abdominal cavity that we're inflating. And to compensate that, we're going to have to increase our minute ventilation. So minute ventilation made up of two things, your tidal volume and your respiratory rate. So with, as Tanner was saying, with the abdominal cavity already pushing up against the lungs, our pressures, our lung pressures are going to already be higher. And so our peak pressure is already going to be elevated. So we're not really going to be able to increase the tidal volume as much simply because those pressures are already so high. We don't want to cause barotrauma to the lungs. So we're most likely going to have to increase our respiratory rate to compensate for the elevated CO2 level just to keep yeah. that, that PaCO2 balanced. Right. So what kind of ventilator mode would you prefer to have them on? Pressure control rather than volume control would be, would be better uh, just to simply monitor how much uh, it just protects the lungs better from barotrauma. Now, keep in mind, though, at the end of the procedure, when we're deflating the, the abdominal cavity, then all if we're still in pressure control mode, then all of a sudden we're going to be giving really big tidal volumes because the pressure in the lungs is, is less now. And so be mindful of that at the end of the procedure that you're, you're keeping an eye on how big the tidal volumes are under pressure control simply right. so that you don't cause barotrauma. And also when you have them on their head and their uh, abdomens inflated, gravity's pushing everything towards their head, you can also have a risk for uh, main stem intubation with these patients. So it's important to, throughout the case, make sure that your tube placement is appropriate, that you're still getting 
your normal end tidal CO2 readings, that you still have bilateral breath sounds. So definitely you need to be aware of the risk for uh, that main stem intubation even during your procedure because of the increased pressure and also potentially depending on their positioning, gravity also having an effect on that. Okay, so the next thing that we should talk about are common complications that you may want to consider as you develop your anesthesia plan. These are things that you will want to keep in mind. The first thing is obviously when you're putting this amount of gas into someone's abdomen, there's a possibility for a gas embolism. Cole, what's the first sign of uh, gas embolism? Uh, the biggest first sign is going to be a dramatic acute drop in your entitled CO2 level. Boom. So the most definitive sign for this would be you can do, uh, do a TEE, which is going to be the most sensitive indicator. You also can grab a Doppler real quick and you'll hear a mill wheel murmur on the Doppler. If you would have a gas embolism, you need to know your steps for treatment immediately. This is something you need to address quickly. So you're going to place them on their left side. You want to stop nitrous. If you're giving nitrous, you want to bolus them with normal saline. You want to, if they have a central venous catheter, you would want to try to evacuate it. But basically what you're trying to trap that gas embolus up. And when you put them on the left side, you're trying to get it into the right atrium and hold it there so it's not going through their pulmonary uh, circulation. Keep in mind, acute decrease in tidal CO2, think gas embolism, and then your steps to manage that. Perfect. And so Scott, when I first was, was reading about this, I would have thought there would have been a, an elevated CO2 level because you're getting all that carbon dioxide into the bloodstream. But the reason it's such that it's, it's that drop in end tidal is because that gas emboli blocks the rest of the blood from flowing through to the pulmonary circuit, as Tanner was saying. And then you're not going to have any CO2 coming back out into the lungs to be measured by our end tidal. So that's why you're going to have that dramatic decrease in your end tidal CO2 but your PaCO2 is still going to be elevated. So that kind of transitions us into another complication, which is going to be uh, sub-Q air or sub-Q emphysema that develops. And this is, this is more commonly caused by an inadvertent um, peritoneal breach, or you could have even a retroperitoneal insufflation as well. It usually occurs like when they're first putting in the, the needle or the port to, to access the cavity to inflate with. Um, they may either put it um, into the sub-Q space or uh, just, just not put it exactly where they want. And so obviously one of the main ways to tell if you have this sub-Q air is crepitus. So if you suspect this is, this is occurring, you can feel around the area to see if you, you feel any crepitus as well. And you are going to have an increase in your entitled CO2. And so that, that's the biggest difference that I'm seeing between a sub-Q emphysema complication versus your gas symbolism is that with the gas, you're going to gas symbolism, you're going to have a dramatic decrease in your end tidal. Whereas with the sub-Q emphysema, you'll have an increase in that C2, the end tidal CO2. So Perfect. a couple, a couple things to think about though, what are some other causes of that increased CO2? So one of the big ones that comes to my mind if we're with anesthesia is MH, malignant hyperthermia from occurring, and that's going to also increase our entitled CO2. So that's something you got to you gotta also keep in mind that it, it's not always just going to be a sub-Q emphysema if you see an increase in entitled. There, there's some other things as well. 
But for treatment for this, if it is sub-Q emphysema, the biggest things that you're going to do is tell the doc, hey, decrease that pressure. I don't like what it's doing to my patient. And you're going to increase your FiO2 to 100%. Um, you're going to feel for crepitus. You're going to assess for a, a pneumo. Um, so you might have to get a neck chest x-ray. Uh, you're going to increase your minute ventilation. Kind of like we talked about before, how you're going to have an elevated CO2 level just naturally from having this pneumoperitoneum, but even more so, you're going to have to increase your, your minute ventilation to treat this increased CO2 level. Um, and then monitor for tracheal deviation as well if you have um, air pushing it to one side. Yeah. I think it's important too, and you mentioned about the reasons that you could have increased carbon dioxide. So, I mean, I, I think it's probably easy when you have this type of uh, case going on that you just naturally think, oh, my CO2 is rising because I'm absorbing from the CO2 that we put in the abdomen. But you always have to go back to your basics and make sure that all your bases are covered. So even going back to your breathing circuit, making sure all your valves are working properly, your absorber is um, effectively taking care of your CO2. You don't want to be just assuming that these are happening because of the type of procedure you're doing. So make sure you still are checking all your bases. I think the other thing I want to talk about quickly with some complications, this is more on the surgical side of things, but just something to keep in mind as you provide care for your patient that you are keeping an eye on everything that's going on in the room. So when they are beginning the procedure and they either do the Hassan procedure and they place the trocar in, or when they do the blind technique with the varus needle, you can have abdominal injuries. So that could be with a small bowel. You could have your iliac artery punctured. You can have issues with puncturing your colon, other veins, basically a bunch of different vasculature that's going to be in your abdominal area. You can also have injury to the bladder, liver. So keep in mind that while the, the surgeons are generally very good at, at not doing these things, you need to keep them in your mind as you, again, are developing your anesthesia plan. What are we going to do if um, one of these things would happen? And make sure you keep it in the back of your mind if your patient isn't behaving how you would generally think they should or they have some weird hemodynamics going on. Just keep in the back of your mind all these different complications that could happen. Post-surgically, you can have hernias in the um, port sites. Uh, again, we talk about with every case, nerve injuries, whether that's positioning or if that's actually direct trauma with um, what the surgeon is doing. So just to keep in mind, all those different things, when you think about why your patient, their hemodynamics might be changing, just keep in mind what, what could be happening with the surgical procedure. Perfect. That wraps up the specific area I wanted to talk about of, of pneumoperitoneum and the complications that can occur in what we would do from an anesthetic standpoint to manage those, those symptoms. So I think that wraps us up. Mm-hmm.